0: Thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, President of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty, and we're going to pick up on the theme from last week about eschatology and its important to the Western legal tradition and why, as I've said, the Western legal tradition no longer really exists, at least in terms of the governing of our legal institutions. Now, it exists in the minds of a few lawyers here and there and a few judges here and there. It's beginning to exist, I hope, in our podcast listeners. But in terms of the way our our legal system is understood today, It doesn't exist. You may remember I was reading last week from Law and Revolution by Harold Berman, his first volume. And he said that not only is our entire legal tradition being challenged, but the very structure of Western legality, which dates from the 11th and 12th centuries. And that's what he wrote in 1983. And what I'm telling you is since then, that has disappeared in terms of law is an organic development that goes along with an eschatology that sees the progress of a regeneration and a renewal that began in time and space in a very real way with Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. Now, of course, since the fall, God has been working towards that and, as I mentioned last week, since creation he's been working towards that. God knew when he created Adam and Eve and said, now I want you to preserve this part of garden I've created and I want you to now extend the garden into Eden and then beyond Eden, he knew exactly what was going to happen, which is why he gave us a new Adam, a last man, Jesus Christ to reestablish the hierarchical authority that he had intended with the original Adam everything was pointed to that uh, one of the things that i had said back in how to to build correctly when we were to, did that series is that there is no foundation that can be laid other than that which is laid in Jesus Christ right remember me saying that and so the whole point is Jesus Christ is the focal point of all of history and one of the things that was noted as we looked at the image of God in man is that man was made in the image of God with a view towards Christ taking on a human nature so that the image of God could be restored. So from the very beginning the restoration of a fallen creation was in mind. Isn't that incredible? We often think in terms of the image of God as wow, what does that say about us, that we were made in the image of God, and, and God wants to restore the image of God in us, and that is great, and that is wonderful, but the fact that he made us in his image was that he might be able to restore that image, that, that there is a new creation, my friends, a real thing. All things are becoming new. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light. And that whole eschatology, as I was saying last week, got lost. Now part of that, the reason it got lost, is because we unwittingly, and I include myself in it, embraced an evolutionary view of time that confused our way of looking at history. And of course, history and tradition is important to the Western legal tradition, right? So I want to go back to a quote that Berman gave, and I want to work it out a little bit today, because I think you'll find this so fascinating. It just blew my mind, and I realized how unbiblical my own thinking was, how easy it is to be taken captive when we don't begin with saying, i got to get this concept of the Trinity down right, which is exactly what... Paul says to do in Colossians chapter 2 I want you to come to understand the knowledge of God, the Father and of the Son so that you won't be deceived, so you won't wind up thinking evolutionary thoughts about the nature of history and get your eschatology all messed up, which then leaves you wandering around aimlessly lost, like I ended the podcast last week quoting Abraham Kuyper telling the seminary students at Princeton in 1898, Protestantism doesn't know what it's doing doesn't know where it's going. Now, here, here's here's what I want to take off from today. So we talked about the fact that the the Christians began to not only see time as linear, but also that there was a regeneration, a transformation that was taking place. And with the Investiture struggle, the Papal Revolution beginning in the mid 1000s into the 11th. Hundreds, you began to see this idea that this regeneration isn't just to escape the earth, but it's supposed to take place in time and history, and that's what propelled the the pope to say, wait a minute, we're, we're, we're the church, we're coming out from under the princes appointing all of our bishops and people like that. Okay, so he says this in the late eleventh and early twelfth centuries. Which is the beginning of the Papal Revolution, the investiture struggle, was for the first time seen as applicable also to the secular society. The reformers, now here he's not referring to the Protestant reformers, he's referring to the reformers who led the, the Papal Revolution, the investiture struggle, then Luther with the German Revolution and its effect on law, and then Calvin in the English Reformation and its effect on law, he said, They began to see themselves at the beginning and end of a new secular time. See, that's so important. They saw themselves then living in an end time. Now, think about the scripture that says, You are now seated with Christ in heavenly places. Metaphysically, that is is the true statement of the position of the Christian. That's where you are. That's now where you're working towards. And that thought goes to this next thought. They projected backward into the past in order to project forward into the future. See, they saw themselves as already in this new creation. They were there. They were seated with Christ in the heavenlies. They would be coming back to the earth released from its ethical curse the, the sin is, is not some potion that got dumped on the earth, like the Sherman Williams paint picture, you know, where the paint's covering the earth, no, that's not the nature of sin. Sin is an ethical, an ethical thing, and, and when the curse of that ethical breach is removed, there can be restoration, and there can be consummation, and there can be the fulfillment of the glorious purposes of God set forth in Genesis chapter 1, okay? So they saw themselves there, and then looking into the future, they looked back into the past to note where they should go. This is the living faith of the dead, as you might say, if you remember from Berman volume two. That's what tradition is. They saw themselves at a turning point in history, the beginning of a new age, which they thought would be the final age before the last judgment. This was a new interruption within the Christian era because it combined the Hebrew idea of linear movement toward a predestined end. Now, as I said, that that understanding has been lost in modern evangelicalism because of our pessimism that God's actually going to be able to do what he set out to do in Genesis chapter 1. The fall changed everything, which means that it was a contingent event in history that God had not accounted for, and so now he had to go to a plan B. I mean, this is such a poor view of who God is, because we don't start with our theology, we start with our, our anthropology, and looking at man and man's environment, but I'm, I don't wanna to get too far off the subject. But, but there was this looking to the future and seeing the future, and then letting that determine not just the present, but the past. Now, that sounds really, really weird. And I'm going to give you two examples to help you understand how the future determines the present, but also determines the past. (laughs) One, think of the heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. It says, Abraham went out looking for a country and even though he was in the land of promise he dwelt as a stranger and alien because he was looking for something more a different city a new Jerusalem you might say whose builder and founder was God and so the writer of Hebrews goes on to say and we have in fact come to the new Jerusalem and the new Mount Zion we're there metaphysically we're there that's what Paul was saying in in Ephesians that's what he's saying in Colossians we are actually there with God in Christ, though we are still here. That's where we are. We live today in light of that. That's living by faith. But now here's the other part. What blew my mind was my lack of understanding about the nature of time and history which goes to my appreciation and understanding of tradition and therefore eschatology. It was all messed up because to be honest, I didn't start with developing a strong, consistent, biblical theology or doctrine of God. I didn't start there as much as I started with questions of soteriology, how do I get saved? Because there is a God. Questions of anthropology. And and so I got sort of the cart before the horse, I guess you could say. But the part of that that affected my thinking of time and history and tradition is that God dwells in eternity and not appreciating, really, that time as we experience. You'll recall the quote from, um, from Berman was the way they looked at secular time. He's not referring to secular versus sacred time, but time in this temporal order. We, dwell in time. Time was created with the creation. It came into existence through the creation. Eternity is completely different in its order of being or essence, I guess you could say. And when we don't appreciate that distinction, we, we will tend to fall into an evolutionary view of reality while still espousing biblical doctrines and let me just add here the fact that time is comes into existence with the creation answers the question what did god do before there was creation as if there was time prior to anything existing the the question is like asking what does the color blue smell like blue doesn't have a smell There isn't any time in eternity. God wasn't doing anything in time in eternity. If that makes sense, I I hope it does. But anyway, I hope it'll make more sense as I continue with an excerpt and some explanations of the excerpts from a book by David Chilton called The Days of Vengeance. It is a commentary on the book of Revelation. Now, I'll tell you, it's not necessarily easy if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, but it will help you become more familiar with the Old Testament. It will help you see the flow of history and change your eschatology from at least what I grew up with was we all need to escape and be raptured out of here. Now, here's what he says. And he points to a verse in Revelation in which Jesus is referred to as the root of David. And Chilton comments as follows. We can more easily understand Isaiah's term, a shoot from the stem of Jesse. As a descendant of Jesse and David, Jesus could be called a branch. But how could he be called the root? Our perplexity originates in our non-biblical views of how history works we are accustomed to thinking of history like this triple lever at one end and a series of domino like thingamajigs and what's its banging into each other and at long last produce a whatchamacallit at the far end of the machine By pure cause and effect each event causes other events in direct chronological succession and and that's how we think uh, Went to high school, which, having gone to a good high school, I got into college, then graduating from college because I did well. I got a scholarship to go to law school. went to law school and blah, 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 right? And Chilton says this. Now, this is true, but it's not the whole truth. And that's because we don't see the difference between time and eternity and between God and the creature, man. In fact, taken alone and autonomously, it is not true at all. Of course, that's what man wants to be, autonomous, right? So we're going to look at time differently. We're going to exclude eternity. We're going to exclude concept of creations. We're going to exclude these concepts that all these things are not commensurate with one another. They're all just sort of the same. This own flowing sense of being and moving of evolution. And in fact, that's what he says. Such a thesis is evolutionary in its assumptions. And I didn't realize that that was me, rather than biblical. Chilton continues, History is not simply a matter of the past causing the future. It's also true that the future causes the past. Now that really hit me funny. I thought, wait a minute, I can see where the future might help me decide what I would do in the present, but the future determines the past? He then quotes from uh, Roussas Rushduni's book, The Biblical Philosophy of History, this statement. The movement of time, according to the Bible, is from eternity, since it is created by God and moves out of and in terms of His eternal decree. So see, time is created by God, and time operates according to God's eternal decree. Now we don't even talk much about God's eternal decrees. We talk about he planned to save us from the foundation of the world, but the world itself, time, everything operates according to God's eternal decrees, according to God's knowledge of all things, his omniscience. You don't have to wait to see what might unfold and then decide what to do next. In light of this X that turned into Y, I'll now do a Z. No, 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 no that's an evolutionary view of time because time is predestined and boy that's a terrible word in the church today within modern evangelicalism we don't like to think of anything predestined that's because we don't understand the difference between time and eternity the creator and the creature because we are more interested in our will than god's will and because it's beginning and end are already established when the first moment of creation began The end was already known because God dwells in eternity. Time does not develop in evolutionary fashion from the past to the present to the future. Instead, it unfolds from future to present to past. Well, that really blew my mind. Maybe it did yours, but let me read it again. He says, time does not develop in evolutionary fashion from past to present to future. Instead, it unfolds from future to present to past. Then he gives an illustration that when I read it, I went, okay, that makes sense. I get it, and I hope it will help you because um, these may be hard concepts for you. They, They were for me. I'd never been introduced to them before. So Chilton gives this example. Let us say someone finds you packing a sack lunch on a warm Saturday morning and asks the reason for it. You answer Because I'm going to have a picnic at the park today. What has happened? Shilton asked. In a sense, the future, the planned picnic, has determined the past. That kind of hit me, but now let's listen. Because you wanted a picnic at the park, you then planned the lunch. Logically, the picnic preceded and caused the making of the lunch even though it followed it chronologically. So in other words, there is this idea in my head, ah, I'm going to have a picnic. Ah, that means I need to make a lunch. And then move into the present, making the lunch, move further into the present, going into the actual picnic. So things moved in a chronological order, but logically, It was the end that determined the past that I would need to act in the present to make a sandwich. I hope that makes sense. You may need to think on it, but see, that's what God's doing. God knows the end. He knows exactly where it's going, and he's going to fulfill the purpose he set forth in Genesis chapter 1. Adam, hey, you and Eve, I want you to reproduce, and I want you to keep the garden, I want you to expand the garden, and I want you to subdue the rest of the world. I want the knowledge of the glory of God to fill the earth. (laughs) And that's what God set out to do, and, well, that's what he's going to do. Now, let me tie this little interlude here about eschatology up as it relates to the law, the Western legal tradition. In the organic development of law. See, because we've lost this sense of purpose and direction, and we've replaced it with escapism, rather than recreation and renewal, most of what I see taking place in law and public policy is let's just, let's just uh, pass a law to stop this, or let's just pass a law to stop that not understanding that they're building on a legal structural foundation anymore that that is unstable and God will have to either wipe out and replace or restore. So they're working in futility because their foundation in law is no longer what it was under the Western legal tradition. And so if our lawyers and our legal advocates, and our policy advocates, and our politicians, and those who vote for them are not working to restore, to rebuild that foundation, well, our work will be futile, and it won't accomplish God's purpose, and, well, as it says in 1 Corinthians 3, uh, you may be saved, but your work will be burned up. And that's what we're trying to do here at the Family Action Council of Tennessee. That's what we're trying to do at the Alliance for Law and Liberty and the Constitutional Government Defense Fund, is to actually restore the Western legal tradition, to move towards that for which God has created us, a new creation that he started in Jesus Christ. And I hope you'll join me next week as we continue this series at God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.factennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Back Tennessee.